0: This is one of the most important things for us today to learn from these early apologists. And that is that before the arguments from reason can be heard, there has to be a manner of life that can be seen, a manner of life that gives power to the words that we use. Welcome to The Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the
1: truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to
0: listen to the Apologetics podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and
1: dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, welcome. I'm Timothy, and it is warmer where Garrett is than it is where I am, and that always makes me very, very angry. But as, as Garrett knows, I mean, anytime it's below 70, I'm angry. So I stay angry about, you know, three, four months of the year.
0: I am Garrick. And if we're staying weather related, I wear open-toed shoes until the weather consistently drops
1: below 40 degrees. So that's my fun fact. There you go. So you all never get to see Garrick's toes on the program, which is just a real loss to all of you. But the rest of us always get to see them. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You're really missing out, folks. Today, we're going to
0: discuss how the church can be an argument for the truth of Christianity. But before that, we're going to have a different type of argument. We are going to argue about some artifacts from church history.
1: That's right. It is time for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. So, Garrick, it's your turn. What do you have for us this particular week?
0: This is one of my more appropriate artifacts. And that is the veil of Veronica. That's right. The veil of St. Veronica. So legend has it or tradition has it, depending on who you are, that St. Veronica encountered Jesus along Via Della Rosa, right? The essentially Jesus's road, the path that he walked to uh, Calvary to the cross. And she stopped to wipe the blood and sweat from Jesus's brow, and she did so with her veil. And as the story goes, when she did so, and she looked at some later moment looked at her veil, the image of Jesus, his face was transferred onto the veil, right? So she wipes blood from his face and then later looks at the veil and and that blood had formed a, a painting of Jesus's face. And so that's not normal for anyone that hasn't wiped blood from someone's face before. So the veil was believed to have mythical powers, including healing. It was said to even heal the Roman emperor Tiberius, said that the veil could quench thirst, it could heal the blind, it could even raise people from the dead. That's a, that's a pretty valuable veil. So this artifact existed in church history for some time, but it seems to have disappeared in the 16th century, 1527 to be exact. This is when the place that it was being held, the church that it was being held in, During one of the sackings of Rome, this church was broken into and several artifacts, several artifacts were stolen along with one that we've previously mentioned, which would be the holy foreskin of Jesus's circumcision, one of my more inappropriate artifacts that uh, brought recently. So that was a big loss for the church
1: back in 1527. Well, what I've got is a little bit more of a military implement, shall we say, a little bit more forceful. Let me give the background of it right here for our readers, our listeners here who are listening and and doing this. So in the year 312... A man named Constantine, who was vying for the emperorship of the Roman Empire at this point, ruling the entire Roman Empire. He has this vision. And as part of this vision, either written on the sky or spoken to him, there's different accounts of this, as are these words in Greek in tuto nike, that is to say, in the sign conquer. And he took that to be the words of Jesus, the sign of the cross, either a kiron, the key and row that you often see as a symbol of Christ, or a Cross. There's a lot of different accounts on this, but one way or the other, he chalked a Christian symbol on the shields of his soldiers, and then they won the battle against Maxentius and Constantine. And his mind, Jesus had become his patron, and he favored Christianity throughout his his reign. Now we aren't going to discuss the authenticity of the vision, the authenticity of Constantine's conversion. That is a different discussion that we are not having here. But what I'm bringing to up against the veil of Veronica is the shield from Constantine. And so these shields would have been circular. They were called the Roman clipius as what they were actually called a circular shield. And in the middle of these shields, this kind of emphasizes the power of these shields. In the middle of these shields, there was an iron knob that could be used in combat that was called the boss. And so, this boss could be used in combat. (laughs) And so, you've got the boss in the middle of a wooden shield covered with leather from Constantine and his army in their battle that they won against Maxentius to be able for him to reign over the Roman Empire. We have that against a healing veil, And so we'll bring those against one another. I think the boss in the middle alone, (laughs) just the boss by itself, (laughs) is going to defeat the veil of of Veronica.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Usually this is about making arguments and trying to win in these battles. I will say that if I had a larger degree of certainty that the veil of Veronica was definitely a thing— right? I would probably fight harder for this, right? I would. But here's the deal. That battle with Constantine, again, there's a lot of historical arguments that we can have. Something happened, right? This was a major moment in history. And at this time, there was no good reason for Constantine to make something like this up and to take on a Christian symbol. It made no sense, Historically speaking, there was only disadvantages to this whole happening. And again, we do have a higher degree of certainty when it comes to the veracity of this historical artifact and, and the account and whatnot. And listen, throughout history, there are a lot of claims of Jesus' face showing up on various things like Pieces of toast and various moldy foods and, and all that kind of stuff. So, that fact alone, I think, decreases the power of this particular possible artifact. So, yeah, it's tough not to vote for Constantine's shield in this
1: one. Yeah. And folks, remember when we bring these things against one another, we're still Protestants. Okay. <laughs> we are right. still we Protestants. Can't, can't uh, just sit aside. Yes. Yeah, so we, you know. we, yeah. So, we don't necessarily believe in. Every part of these artifacts, these are real things from church history, but whether they came about in exactly the way that they were reported to, we think is is a little bit questionable at times. The veil vale of Veronica being one of those that is a little bit questionable, at least, whether it is a genuine artifact that uh, actually healed people, that actually had the image of Jesus, all of those things like that. Yeah.
0: More likely than the Phoenix, or less likely? Do you have any opinions there? <laughs> oh man,
1: I, you don't. Ha- you don't have to answer that if you don't want. To. You don't. If I you don't want, to get want the Phoenix to be oh, real, well, that's the problem. Yeah, I just want. I don't want Veronica's veil to be real. I don't care if it's real, but I would really like for a Phoenix to be real. Well, a few months ago, you and I met one another after having not seen one another for a long, long time at a place called ETS, which was being held in Fort Worth, Texas, which is sort of in your backyard from Dallas where you are. And ETS stands for the Evangelical Theological Society. And it's something that our friend Nathan Finn calls Comic Con for Theologians, which is kind of true. It really is. That's kind of what it is. It's basically theologians dress up in all of their theologian outfits and they present thoughts and ideas and papers and things like that. So we met up at ETS, and uh, this is one of the better ETSs. One time you and I were together, and we got stuck in Providence for ETS, and that was a miserable evangelical theological society. In fact, the only redeeming fact in that was that it overlapped by one day with Comic-Con. The real Comic-Con,
0: yeah. Yeah. So
1: Comic-Con was there, Comic-Con Northeast. There was a guy dressed up as Thor that totally looked like Chris Hemsworth and totally he looked like Thor, and that was actually the redeeming factor there. Everything else about Providence was pretty. And if, if there are any listeners in Providence, we're sorry. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. But it was it was a pretty miserable time.
0: It was Providence in November. It wasn't. It was not a pretty week at all.
1: Yes, divine providence is much more beautiful.
0: <laughs> That's right. If we really wanted to step up the Comic Con, the theological Comic Con game, we really would like wear our regalia and whatnot to oh, you know
1: to these things, right? Any excuse to wear our doctoral regalia that we wear for formal occasions, I am all about. I really am all about doing that anytime whatsoever. And so in all fairness, Providence, their times of the year it's wonderful. Late November, when we were there, it was raining, not one of them. But anyway, last few months ago We were at ETS in Fort Worth and I presented a paper at ETS. And so we're kind of going to talk about the ETS paper and work through some of the things because part of what I was arguing in this paper is something that I'm arguing in a much larger scale in some other projects I'm working on. And that is this notion that the church itself can be an argument for the truthfulness of Christianity. That's kind of the, the thing I'm trying to argue, what I'm calling ecclesial apologetics, the idea of the church itself as an argument for the truthfulness of Christianity. And what kind of brought part of this about is a book, a really good book in some ways. I didn't agree with it, but it was a pretty good book nonetheless called The End of Apologetics, which if that's really true, apologetics is really ending. I should be pretty worried about that because a significant (laughs) part of my livelihood and all of our podcast is dependent on apologetics. So if apologetics is coming to an end, we are all in trouble. But this book by Myron Bradley Penner, It really isn't about the end of apologetics, all apologetics. It is the end of, in his mind, what he calls the enlightenment project of attempting to establish rational foundation for Christian belief. He wants to push back against the idea of a rational argument for Christianity. And what he wants instead, in fact, he sees a rational argument in his words for Christianity as the single biggest threat to genuine Christian faith that we face today— are pretty strong words the single biggest threat to genuine christian faith that we face today and so in this, he's saying that the argument we need is not a rational argument. It is rather an argument in which the form and the content are not separated. That is to say that it is a relationship. And what apologetics becomes, according to Penner, is where we're basically as a community of faith saying to the world, this is the truth I've encountered. It's edified me. Take a look at my life, who I am, and see if you think it's true. And I think that if you consider your own life, You'll find it edifying for your life too. That's what he reduces apologetics to. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things we could say about that. We're not going to say even close to all of them. But what I wanted to point out in this paper is that, in essence, he is reducing apologetics to a relationship. So, in other words, he's saying in the Enlightenment, it was reduced to rationality, make a rational, logical argument. But what he's doing is swinging to the other side and saying he's making it all relational. And that is equally ineffective. If it's fully rational or fully relational, those are both a weakened form of apologetics. And what I wanted to argue is that the relational aspect that he really, really wants actually we can find it not by looking in some sort of postmodern philosophy or anything like that. We can actually find it in the early church. We can actually find it among the earliest Christians. And so that's what I wanted to argue in this particular paper.
0: Yeah, we've touched on this topic, things related to it several times throughout our discussions over the last few years. And what Penner's doing in apologetics Many theologians and kind of cultural critics are are doing something similar in other areas, and that is, hey, given our cultural moment and the shift that we're seeing and that we're in the midst of, the way we go about doing things, the discussions we have, the arguments we make are less effective, or some folks would say entirely ineffective, given that minds and forms of thinking and, and frameworks and worldviews have changed. And so There's truth there. It's a conversation that ought to be had. And at the same time, being the Protestants that we are, we tend to like to react to one thing and swing the pendulum all the way to the opposite side until how many ever years later, someone else is going to come along and say, yep, there's an overcorrection. We need to take this thing back to the middle. And as so many folks have observed, that our cultural moment reflects certainly looks similar in many ways to the same cultural moment that the early church was sitting in and so it's time to look back again most of us historians would say listen we should have always been doing this but i think more and more folks now are seeing hey there is much to be learned by the way that the earliest christians went about
1: making a defense of christianity And I think we agree one of the persons who's doing this the best is our friend Josh Shatro. He's got a book coming out on Augustinian apologetics that I had the privilege of reading a pre-publication copy just a few weeks ago. I just encourage our, our listeners to be on the lookout for it. It really, really is a good book. And he's done a lot of work telling a better story, apologetics at the cross, and then especially this forthcoming book he's got on Augustinian apologetics. That's what he's doing in a different way. Now, I'm doing it in a slightly different way, but we're kind of in the same lane, doing a lot of the same things in this. And so as I look at Penner at this book, The End of Apologetics, I think there are two key problems with the argument he's making. And the first one is, is what stands between a non-Christian and faith in Christ is not just whether or not Christianity seems edifying. That's not the only thing that stands in the way. Now, in all fairness, modern apologists in the past couple of centuries often assumed that all that stood in the way were reasons, rationality, if we just dismantle the reasons that are given against Christianity and we build better reasons to defend Christianity, then you'll just believe at that point. And they assumed that rationality and reason was all that stood in the way of faith. But the fact is, as Reformed Protestants, we believe that what stands in the way of faith is far more than merely relationship or rationality, that it's humanity's rebellion against God. It's a lack of desire for God that only the Holy Spirit can overcome. And we believe that apologetics is a means that God uses, but it cannot answer all the questions. And what we're kind of doing in apologetics often is clearing out by God's grace and that he lets us be part of this, clearing out some of the questions people have so that it becomes a means for the Holy Spirit to work. And so you just can't have just this relational edifying, this is going to be edifying for you, and that to be the thing that brings somebody to faith. Nor can you, on the other hand, say, it's just the reasons, it's just the rationality. People are whole beings. They're relational beings, they're spiritual beings, they're physical beings, they're rational beings. And apologetics— Has to address the whole person, which is kind of the other problem that I think with this is that fully relational apologetics are just as unbalanced as fully rational apologetics. Apologetics has to be about the whole person. In a lot of ways, it felt like to me reading Penner's book that he was channeling Supertramp. You remember the song? It's 1979. It's called The Logical Song. And it's this song that was written with an utter disdain for the logical and the rational. I mean, the whole song is about this boy getting sent off to a boarding school. And he felt like that before he had this wonderful life that was free from logic and rationality. And suddenly, they made him think logically and rationally. That's kind of what Penner is is pushing back. He's saying that all that rationality has made people dependable, clinical, intellectual, cynical. We need to return to this edifying relational apologetic. And there's a part of me that agrees with him. That it really does. There's a part of me that agrees with what he's saying, that apologetics has gotten too closely tied to modernity and logic and rational. But the answer is not a complete abandonment of the rational and the logical. That's not the right answer. Yeah. It's reductionistic, as
0: you have said. And it's not only reductionistic in terms of thinking methodologically, but it's reductionistic of humans. So what I
1: want us to think about as we work through this is, as we look at these different types of people, different types of apologetics, is to recognize something that is said thousands of times every day on airport runways. And it's that the exit door you're looking for may be behind you. Remember the, the steward on the airline always says, and it's always more interesting if it's a Southwest Airlines because they actually kind of do some fun different things with it at times. But one of the things they'll say is if there's something where you've got to get out of the airplane, remember the exit door you're looking for may be behind you. And they have to say that because we always assume that what we need is in front of us. And sometimes what we need is actually behind us. And that's true with history as well. So what Pinner does is he's basically saying, look, you've got to look forward. You're going to look in front of you to find what you need. And I want to say, okay, there may be some things in front of you you need. I'm not going to deny that completely. But the exit door you're looking for may be behind you. There is, I would argue, a pre-modern approach to apologetics that actually brought the form and the content together, that actually was rational and relational. And that doesn't mean we should or can or could do exactly what they did. We do live in a different world than they lived in. I'm not trying to say that what we have today is exactly what they had then. It's not. But... What they did can provide us with sort of a template, we might say, for how to do this. And I think that among ancient Christians, there was a pattern of pointing to the church itself as a reason to believe. We see it all the way back in Augustine of Hippo he says in in City of God, he says that obscure men with no standing and no education were effective in persuading the world. That's one of his proofs or evidences for the truth of Christianity is that obscure men with no standing and no education were effective in persuading the world. And so that's one of the things he says. He says the early growth of the church defies natural explanation, but even a earlier than Augustine. You know, Augustine's writing in the fifth century. 300 years before that, the apologists of the second century were actually already making a similar argument, not about the growth of the church, though they sometimes did mention that as well, but about the countercultural ethics of the church. They were saying that the countercultural ethics of the church defied natural explanation. And so here's what I want to do is do kind of a test case for this, and it's to look at in the second century how Christians cared for orphans and for those in poverty. And these interest me as a parent, having adopted children. These interest me as a pastor in a very low-income neighborhood, pastoring in an urban congregation that's very multi socioeconomic in its context. And these interest me, the orphans and those in poverty. The parentless and the poor, how did early Christians care for those? And what I want to do is look really briefly at three different texts from the second century one from a guy named Aristides, one from the Epistle to Diognetus, and one from Ignatius of Antioch's letter to the church in Smyrna. Aristides, so you've mentioned him a lot just in our conversations
0: in the last few years, and I know that he's a big part. Of the apologetics courses that you teach on a regular basis. And these aren't history of apologetics courses, these are Christian apologetics. And you mentioned second century apologists, which I think it's important to know like these are the first men and women of the Christian church that we call apologists, right? This is where we get the term from. And as Timothy has said, what they were writing and saying and arguing was very different than the apologetics that we've come to know about in the last few hundred years. So tell us about Aristides. Why is it important for us to know him, know of him, and know what he said?
1: Well, Aristides, he's a philosopher in the early 2nd century. So, he's early 2nd century, one of the earliest apologists in the history of the church. We have his writings survive. Now, his writings actually were thought to be lost all the way until the latter part of the 19th century when a Latin translation of an Armenian text became available And it's kind of a funny thing that actually his writings, his main writing, the Apologia, was actually preserved in a novel that nobody realized had been preserved in. So it's just kind of the strange thing. They finally realized in the late 19th century, oh, my goodness, we have the writings of Aristides, which had been mentioned by Eusebius, the church historian, as well as others. And so they found this. But his is one of the earliest examples of how Christians argued for the truthfulness of their faith. And he sends this to the emperor now we don't know if the emperor ever actually read it a lot of these early apologies were sent to the emperors but probably the emperors didn't actually ever read them they may have but probably not and so it was addressed to the emperor and i love what he does in it what aristides does in this because It is so multifaceted. It just blows out of the water the whole idea that there's one apologetics method that everybody ought to do all the time. And that's why it ends up in my classes so much, is I want people to see right off the bat, if you are committed to a certain apologetics method, and in your mind, there is no way to do apologetics apart from doing that method, then you have rejected some of the earliest examples of apologetics in the early church. And a lot of people get really committed to a certain method. And he just kind of destroys that type of an idea of that. So that's one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand, to see, to recognize in the early apologetics. But he starts out with an appeal to aesthetics, to the beauty of creation. He says when I'd considered the sky and the earth and the seas and surveyed the sun and the rest of creation I marveled at their beauty I perceived the world and all that is therein as moved by the power of another the God who is hidden in them and yet veiled by them. So he starts out with this that seems to be dependent on Aristotle's metaphysics, this beauty of the world argument, motion and beauty. He says motion has to have a prime mover. Beauty has to come from someone. The world is too beautiful to be explained by purely random means or by the types of gods that you have promoted and produced in the Greco-Roman culture and in the barbarian cultures. Those gods wouldn't produce a world that is So beautiful. And the key question, though, for most of the Apology of Aristides, he lists the four types of people in the world barbarians, Greeks, Jews, Christians. For him, there's four types of people. Christianity, for him, is a new type of people. And so he says these are the four types of people. Which one serves the type of God? That would fit this beautiful universe? And what manner of life does the worship of each of these types of people produce? That's the big thing. He's wrestling with that question. This is a different type of apologetics. Who serves the type of God that fits the creation as we see it? And what type of life does each type of worship produce?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's an aesthetic argument in ways, it's a teleological argument. It's also a tassological argument. Remember,
1: tassological,
0: tassological. (laughs) It's not going to stick, man. It's not going to
1: stick. We should explain to our listeners uh, on that. So I have, for the uh, longest time, the argument from design, that is that the universe is designed rather than random. I have argued that it should not be called the argument from design, but it should be called the tassological argument. And so every semester I teach my students this because I teach probably 100 to 200 students, maybe more every semester. And if I get this in enough of them, then in the long term, I get t- pathological Yes. <laughs> so anyway, so help me out, folks, please. We got a, we got a couple thousand listeners right now that are listening to this. So when you refer to the argument from design, and just just act like it's always been called that. Just kind of act like you know the tassological argument. Be yeah, confident. just yeah, exactly. Be so confident that this is just the name of this argument, the right name of it, and just go that way. People will just go with you. I'm very optimistic. A, a decade from now, tassological is the way it's going to be. So so anyway, so that is a tassological <laughs> argument.
0: Let's look at a few things that Aristides said from his work, right? So what Timothy has said means a few things, and there's some things that it does not mean, right? Such as beginning with an appeal to the beauty of creation is not some... 19th century move to natural theology that de-emphasizes or rejects the importance of scripture right so in apology 15 he says Christians as we have learned from their writings have come closer to the truth and genuine knowledge than the rest meaning the rest of the philosophies of the world and and the you know major the religions and, and the major thoughts and so so he points to our writings and then says these writings get closer to the truth than any other writings
1: that exist. And then what he does at that point is he emphasizes the Christian manner of life. That becomes his big emphasis at that point. This is one
0: of the most important things for us today to learn from these early apologists. And that is that before the arguments from reason can be heard, then there has to be a manner of life that can be seen, a manner of life that gives power to the words that we use, right? So Aristides says, when speaking about Christians and and how they live, their way of being in the world, he says, they do not turn away their respect from widows, and they redeem the orphan from the one who abuses him. Those who have give without boasting to the one who has not. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him like a brother, for they call each other brothers, not after the flesh, but after the spirit in God. Whenever one of their poor passes from the world, whenever one of their poor dies, each one, according to his ability, pays attention and carefully sees to his burial. If they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or inflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them eagerly minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem the imprisoned one, they set him free. If there is anyone among them who is poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply the needy in their lack of food. They do not proclaim these kind deeds so that they do in the ears of the crowd, but they are careful that no one should notice them. They conceal their giving like one who finds a treasure and conceals it. Truly, this is a new people, and there is
1: something divine mingled among them. That type of incongruous generosity of giving to somebody who can't return it to you in kind or in the same degree that you gave it to them, the idea that that's good, that the vulnerable are to be cared for, that the poor, that the orphan, all those are to be cared for, that is only perceived as good in our culture because of the Christian tradition that's only perceived to be good. We can see if we look at the world around Aristides, the people around him would not necessarily have said, oh, that's really good. No. They would have said, that's really stupid that Christians are doing this. That's what they would have seen it as. And we often forget that the notion of care for the poor care for the vulnerable is only perceived as good because of the riches of the Christian tradition that are still embedded in our culture, even among people who have rejected the truth of it. Let's think about one of the great events in rock and roll history. July 13th, 1985, Live Aid.
0: It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia, and around the world, it's time for Live Aid. 16 hours of live music in aid of famine relief in Africa, Wembley welcomes their Royal Highnesses, the Prince and Princess of Wales.
1: This was a response to the 1983 to 1985, the famine in Ethiopia. And an Irish musician, Bob Geldof, had written the song, Do They Know It's Christmas? And it was in December of 1984 that raised money that was responded to by American artists by producing the song We Are the World. And that was all followed up then as part of this, this movement in the mid-1980s by Live Aid, which is, you think about it, Then at that time in the 1980s, this was an amazing event. 160,000 people in two stadiums, one of them in London, one of them in Philadelphia. And this was simulcast. This is in the 1980s. That was simulcast. You have at this performance queen with the greatest live performance in in rock and roll history. This was the event that turned U2 into international stars. This was where people on both sides of the Atlantic saw U2. Phil Collins, I didn't realize this till reading up on this. Phil Collins was the one artist that performed in both concerts. He performed in London, then he got on a plane, a Concord, flew across and then performed in Philadelphia in the same concert (laughs) so he actually did this it's because he could feel it in the air met Cher on the plane. She wasn't even headed to do this. He met Cher on the plane and asked her to join him. So Cher joins in in the concert. She just goes along and she shows up at the concert. She didn't turn back time. She just got there really, really quick. If she could turn back time, if she could find a way, but she didn't. She just flew on a Concord (laughs) and got there really fast. the thing. You don't get live aid, farm aid, we are the world on the basis of Roman culture. You don't get it on the basis of pagan culture. You don't get it on the basis of secular culture. That type of incongruous generosity of giving to the poor, of giving to the parentless, of giving to the orphan was not perceived as a social good among the Romans, among pagans, and it shouldn't be among secular people unless they are doing what I argue that basically secular people, when they have these things that are good and they identify them as good of caring for the vulnerable, when they do that, they are taking out loans from a bank they no longer believe exists. They don't believe the bank of Christian tradition really provides anything good, but they're taking loans out of it when they do that is exactly what they do because in the ancient world, it was mocked to care for the poor and the vulnerable. There's a guy named Lucian of Samosata in the second century, wrote a whole thing about Christians, and part of what he mocked about Christians was they cared for the poor. You only get these things because of Christian assumptions that have been woven into Western civilization. You only get it. Implicitly, I think even the people at Live Aid got it. Joan Baez, she leads the crowd in the song Amazing Grace. And Bob Geldof, he ends one of his songs by saying, the lesson today is how to die. And somebody else responded to that, and he said it was evangelical in that moment when Bob stopped and raised his fist. In other words, he's recognizing the religious overtones in spite of themselves. Can't stop in the playground now. She wants to play with the
0: Aristides was not declaring that the goodness of these deeds demonstrated the presence of God amongst the people of the church. He was pointing out that the impossibility of these habits, these lives that were countercultural, that were counter intuitive apart from the presence of some power. And he made the argument that that particular power was the God of the Christians when he says there is something divine mingled
1: among them. So that's Aristides. He's pretty awesome. He is amazing. And he's got this notion that leads us to the next person, Ignatius of Antioch, is that the sufferings of Christ actually shape the people, and that's really important. It's implicit in Aristides. It becomes explicit in Ignatius of Antioch, who was this bishop in the early second century. He was sentenced to die for his faith, and so a contingent of 10 different soldiers escorted him to Rome to die, and along the way, Ignatius pens seven letters, and these seven letters of Aristides survive still today as this kind of testament of his care For the churches of his faith in Christ. And what's fascinating in his letter to the church in Smyrna is that he argues that care for the poor is a test of your theology, specifically your Christology. That is to say, if you don't care for the poor, you don't really believe adequately in the physical sufferings of Jesus. That's fascinating. Let me read this aloud. right? Let me
0: read this, Ignatius' quote, and then see what you think. He says, those who hold heretical opinions about the grace of Jesus Christ are those who have no concern about love, nor about the widow, nor about the orphan, nor about the oppressed, nor about the prisoner, or the one released, nor about the hungry, or the thirsty. Seems pretty biblical, right? (laughs) That if you hold no concern of these, then essentially, no matter what you claim, you're walking in direct disobedience to the teachings and the commands of Christ, the resurrected Son of God, whom you claim to be your Savior, your Lord. I mean, this is still. Proclaimed often from pulpits today, right? This is still something that pastors have to hold in front of the church on a consistent basis. Like, this is what Jesus said, and are we a people who are doing this? I'd even say that we always have been, right? The church has always cared for the poor, for the oppressed, and whatnot, but also perhaps not to the degree which we should have, or perhaps we've been louder, <laughs> more vocal about the things that we oppose and are against rather than holding up the things that we are for and value. And and that leaves us vulnerable to criticisms like when we are fighting for the rights of unborn children and we receive the pushback on, okay, you're always fighting for sanctity of life in the womb, but where are you when these babies are born into abject poverty and abuse of homes, and where are you then? We know the answer to that, but perhaps our actions haven't been louder than our words when it comes
1: to this. And for Ignatius, as he looks at this— The issue is not just in terms of ministry priorities. A lot of times we think this is merely an issue of ministry priorities. For him, the issue, if if you're not getting this right, is theological. It's theological. You have a deep theological problem. A lack of concern for the sufferings of the vulnerable, for Ignatius, is an outward symptom of beliefs about Jesus that, in his words, they are contrary to the very mind of God. In other words, if you don't care for the poor— If you don't care for the vulnerable, if you don't care about the oppressed, then you don't believe adequately in the physical sufferings of Jesus because your belief in a Messiah, a divine God-man who has come to save you, who suffered, that's going to drive you to care about the sufferings of people. And if you aren't driven to care for the sufferings of people, you don't believe adequately and rightly in the sufferings of Jesus. Defective Christology results in defective care, according to Ignatius. Defective Christology turns into defective care. And that's just one of the just the best things about Ignatius in terms of reminding us, but what we see once again is the life of the church is functioning as an apologetic for the reality of God's presence in his church in a different way than Aristides. He's not doing the same thing as Aristides, but he's doing this in a different way. And so we've got Ignatius, we have Aristides. The last one I want us to look at is the epistle to Diognetus or Diognetus. We can Diognetus. pronounce it either way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you
0: for throwing it's, that out there, right? Just because I know it's a preference. I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Tomato, tomato, diagnetus Diognetus. Diognetus. Uh, I prefer Diognetus, but I find so many people don't know who I'm talking about, so I go with Diognetus. So, nobody knows who wrote this text, actually. It seems to have been written in the second century, and it emphasizes Christian ethics, but he does some different things than either Ignatius or Aristides do. So, for him, the thing that he does, which is fascinating, is that The real evidence for Christianity, for this author of the epistle to Diognetus, for him, the real evidence for Christianity is the martyrdom. Of somebody, when they're martyred. Now, this is a common thing in the early church that we see that this is an evidence, as rightly it should be considered an evidence. He says, these things, when this happens, persecution and execution, these don't look like human works, he says. They're the power of God. They are the proofs, he says, of God's presence. The church's faithfulness to the point of death is the evidence of God's presence among his people. So, this is a big thing for the author of this letter. Yeah, I think it's important to note that these are
0: not two sides of a coin, or or they are two sides of one coin, because t- to point to, hey, look at how Christians live, and to also point to, and, and look at the way Christians die. These two things are not mutually exclusive. They're the same argument. In fact, it's it's biblical, right? It's how we point to the life of Christ. Look at the one who was obedient, and obedient to the point of death, death even on a cross. This is all part of one argument that the power of the witness of the early martyrs was the same as the, the power of the witness of the way that they lived and ministered to people while alive that we've been talking about. So so this is just really fascinating. It's all about the witness to the lives of the church. Look at how they live and look at how they die something is different about these people in
1: the way they do both of those things. They die well. They die differently than the Romans. That's really crucial throughout many, many of these early apologists. And so what we see in this letter, that again, we don't know or this treatise that we don't know who wrote it, is that he recognizes that if you really are imitating God, You're going to care for the poor. He says, whoever takes up a neighbor's burden, whoever wishes to work for the good of someone who's worse off in something in which he himself is better off, whoever provides to those in need what he has received from God, that is the one who has received something from God. So that's his his kind of argument there is if you imitate God, then you're going to care for the poor. But then he takes another step. And this is the crucial move that the author of this text makes that nobody else really made, but is is beautiful and true and good. He says that generosity to the poor prepares us for martyrdom. It's a preparation for martyrdom. In other words, what he's saying, this is in chapter 10 of the Epistle to Diognetus, habits of generosity— toward the powerless, cultivate a heart of admiration for the persecuted. And this admiration causes the Christian's heart to despise what is here considered to be death, what is here esteemed as death. So in other words, you admire, you have these habits of generosity that makes you admire those who are persecuted and your admiration of those who are persecuted causes you to be ready to be persecuted. So ultimately care for the poor is practice for persecution. And so the people of the church give their possessions to those in need to train themselves to be ready to give their lives. And so if we think about it this way, care for the poor is rehearsal for martyrdom, which remember, for Epistle to Diognetus, martyrdom is the ultimate proof of the truth of Christianity. And when we give our resources to others, that's miniature martyrdom, we might say. Yeah, it's good to
0: note that elsewhere in these earliest writings that guardrails were thrown up kind of when it comes to this issue, right? So the care for the poor will bring admiration for the persecuted, which will prepare you for the possibility of martyrdom. You will not love your life so much that you will hang on to it. You'll do everything necessary to hang on to it. And at the same time, there are other early authors who will say – but you aren't to hate your life the gift of life in such a way or you aren't to admire martyrs above all so that you run foolishly into death just to join them there's a fine line right it was to not fear death to despise death but not in a way not in a way that it makes it look like you despise life this gift of god and and that you throw it away just to be counted among the martyrs it's again it's a really interesting point. that You face death without fear, but not foolishly because there's the witness of life that's every bit as important to showing the
1: beauty, the goodness, the truth of Christianity. And not everybody will or should be a martyr, but everybody should be ready to be. And that's what you really see in the early church, this balance there, this beautiful balance in that. And for, for the author of this epistle to Diognetus, That is our preparation for martyrdom. We prepare by caring for those who can't give back to us to the same degree that we have given to them by being generous. And so when we look at Myron Penner's book, The End of Apologetics, that we started with, he says, what's needed in our witness if those we engage are to be edified is a poetics that performs the essentially Christian. Now, he calls us in that to look forward to some sort of a postmodern type of an idea in which it's all relational and about edifying others. But I just argue in this that this poetic performance that is essentially Christian, we actually see it in the second century. We see it so clearly, this, it is beautiful, it is essentially Christian, it is a community doing What is right and good. And so, to return to what we said earlier, the exit doors we're looking for are not in front of us, but behind us. Now, as I already hinted at, not saying Christians are better people than non Christians. Sometimes non Christians are better people than Christians. Not saying that our good deeds will earn us a hearing from the world, because sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. What I'm saying in this is the generosity of a faithful church is not explainable by any purely Naturalistic categories because it's so radically countercultural. And for us as Reformed Protestants, just as a kind of an addition to that, no one can say you're doing this to get to heaven or you're trying to earn blessings by doing this because we believe that our salvation and our blessings from God in terms of our eternal blessings in heaven are not dependent on our good deeds, but rather that is simply dependent on our. Union with Christ, that we are united with Christ, and therefore we receive in Christ all that God gives to Christ, we receive, and therefore that's what vouchsafes our eternal life. We can do these good deeds freely, and saying there's nothing we're doing to earn anybody's favor through these good deeds. One major difference
0: when we talk about the similarities of our cultural moment to that of the early church. One of the major differences is something that the early church was not facing was the wholesale rejection of the sacred, right, of the supernatural, of the divine. That's not a battle they were fighting. As you say, Timothy, a lot of this was an argument for the kind of God that would result in these kind of people living these kind of lives and dying these kind of deaths, right? Right. Whereas our our moments a bit different. But at the same time, I, I think the call still remains, right? To live lives that to the watching world more and more can only be explained in light of something sacred and divine, and that can't be, as you've said, cannot be explained solely on a naturalistic basis.
1: I think there's a couple of things just in applying all of this as we bring it together, just two things that I would want to leave our listeners with to help them apply this. And number one is, as you look at your church, as you look at your life, healthy theology cultivates habits of care for the broken and the vulnerable. If your theology doesn't produce habits of care and kindness and gentleness with the broken and the vulnerable, your theology, it may be orthodox, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy. And that's what Ignatius of Antioch recognized. He recognized this connection between our theology and our charity. And he recognized that a pattern of care for physical needs, it it may not guarantee a church's orthodoxy, But if there is no care for physical needs, there is a defect. There's something defective in a church's priorities that extends all the way to its theology. And especially if a church is hesitant to be generous to the parentless and the poor, or if it's unkind and ungracious, the problem is not just a matter of misplaced ministry priorities. This hesitance, it reveals a disorder in the congregation's theology. And one of the things we've done is we've separated our theology from our kindness. And the early church never did that. Then we've made it where you can be a mean person and you can be an ungracious, ungiving person, but your theology is still good. No, your theology is not good.
0: That's right. Friends, if there's something that Timothy and I bump into, fight against all the time, kind of in what we do and and what we're trying to do in our respective churches and institutions and whatnot. And this applies to both sides. There are two extremes and both of them are engaging always in this battle between the head and the hands or the the hearts and the hands. And in reality, those, those are inseparable. Inseparable. Good theology, orthodoxy is none of those things apart from orthopraxy, right living and right... Practice and right living and right practice is supported and a result of deep and, and right thinking about God and who He is and His nature and character and what He has done for us in His Son. And so, yeah, these things, they've always been inseparable. That's the way they began. And it's only in the last few hundred years that we've divided the two and have fought over
1: which one's more important. Yeah, so I think that's just probably something that's closest to our heartbeat for what we want for apologetics. It really is. And I think the other thing, and this has to do with how you look at your church, is to recognize as you look at your church, preparations for martyrdom surround you, and they're beautiful. Just notice in your church how people are suffering well, dying well, how they are giving generously, and recognize This is a beautiful thing. This is, according to the Epistle to Geognetus, this is preparation for martyrdom. That when somebody cares for the vulnerable, it's like a dress rehearsal for dying well. It's a miniature martyrdom. It's a liturgy of letting go what is temporary for the sake of that which is eternal. Thank you. Come you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting The Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug.
0: To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our
1: website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast.